Well, good morning. You can be seated. We are so glad you are here today, whether you're joining us here in the house, online, podcast, during the week. Welcome to the orchard. Something happened recently in our life. My wife, Amy, um, she's had 20-20 vision her whole life, but now that she's 26, you know, 27, she's, she's, um, she said that she was wondering about getting some glasses. Now, I've had contacts since I was younger, and so, you know, I always know the feeling of when you go to the eye doctor, and you, you get out of the eye doctor, and you look around and go, wow, so that's what I was missing. Well, she's never had that experience. This was the first time, and so she went to see Dr. Tim Bauer here in the area. He's our, he, he takes care of our eyes, and so she went in there, and he goes, well, you need some glasses, and she's never had glasses before. And it's going to take about, you know, three or four days to get used to it. And it was so fun for me to sit next to her in the car driving or being around. And she would like, she'd just be looking around and she would lift them up and squint up. And she'd like, and she'd take them off. And she goes, has that always been there? You know? <laughs> and at one point she took them off and she goes, now, I have a question. Am I seeing, are, did I always see like this? Or have these glasses made me see worse now that I don't have them? <laughs> it's like, no, now you see clearly. And you've all had those moments, haven't you, where you've gone to see the eye doctor and you walk out and go, oh, okay, now I see clearly. I bring that up because uh, as we go back to the Old Testament, I was joking with somebody this, this past week how we are a New Testament church and the new promise of Jesus. And he goes, but you, you do so much Old Testament and I said, yes, yes, there's a reason. And, and, and the Old Testament can be hard and confusing. It's an ancient people, an ancient culture with ancient practices and some violence and all those things that go into it. But if you have the correct lens to look at the Old Testament, you begin to see things differently, more clearly. If you have the lens to see, you can find God's nature in some of these Old Testament stories. And you know my favorite thing, if you've been tracking with us, I like for us to have the lens that can find and see Jesus in the Old Testament foreshadows of him, a little trail of breadcrumbs leading to the cross, or mentions of, 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 of a, his presence being there, and today is another one of those days. And so today we're in Exodus 16. Remember, um, Exodus, God is freeing his people from slavery, that famous line he delivers to Pharaoh, Moses says, let my people go, and they are let go, and they leave bondage, they leave slavery, and you would think, since God rescued, rescued them, from there on out, it would just be easy, Right? I mean, the hard stuff was all the slavery. God did this great work, and from there on out, it is just puppy dogs and rainbows, and it is it just is amazing, but, but it's not, it doesn't go that way. You see, it, it should have been a two-week journey from the Red Sea to the Promised Land where they're going to settle down. Two weeks, a two-week journey, but we're going to find it's going to take them 40 years, and that's how long this series is. It's great. It's going to be a great series. It takes them 40 years as they're circling and cycling through the wilderness. And why? Because remember, the people of God had known captivity for generations. It's all they had known. They haven't known another life. And while God removed his people from Egypt, he now wanted to remove the Egypt from his people. Like their bodies weren't in Egypt, but Egypt was in their hearts. So he, in other words, he's setting them free from captivity. That was the part of it. But that wasn't the finish line. That was the starting line for a new life. God wanted to move in their midst in such a powerful way that their character and their faith and their courage, it would break off all the remaining chains of bondage from their previous life. And you know what? It's the good news. God still does this today. Perhaps at some point you, you decided to believe in Jesus as your Savior. You made a, you made a decision. You prayed a prayer. You, you decided to follow Jesus 
as your Savior, forgiveness of your sins, or perhaps you're considering stepping across that line of faith as you listen even now. And at that moment, the Bible is clear that at that moment, when you make that decision, your spirit, the truest, eternal part of you, is transformed, made into a new creation, that God forgives your past, gives you peace and power in your present and hope for your future in a whole new way. But salvation was never intended to be the finish line. It's not like we, we pray a prayer at camp somewhere and we're done. No, no, for salvation isn't the finish line. Salvation is the starting line. And God may have set you free. He may have taken you out of your own Egypt of sin. It's important for him to continue to take the power of sin out of you. And like God's people in Exodus, what does that mean? It means that we often go through wilderness seasons. Now, what's a wilderness season? It's those times where you aren't yet where you want to be or how you want to be, but you weren't who you were. It's that in-between place. You're not in the slavery of something, but you're also not in the promised land. You're in between. You're in the limbo. And often in wilderness seasons, there are resources and even relationships that are absent and we feel that deeply, or a sense of purpose that seems absent. When we feel that, you're waiting for God to show up and do the next thing to lead you to the next purpose, the promised land. And there's a separation from the life that you were living, and there's that separation from the life that you still want to live. The ancient people of God are in the wilderness, and it's keeping them from experiencing what they really want out of life. What they want is the promised land, the destination, They want to get there and put down roots and have a place of their own and be God's people and thrive and grow. The promised land is where there is peace and joy and purpose. It's deep. It's rich. But they're not there yet. They're in this wilderness. They've left their their former life. They have a new life ahead of them, but they're in the in-between. The number one question that God asks these ancient people there in the wilderness, is the same question he asks you and me when we're in wilderness seasons, and that's this. Do you trust me? Do you trust me? That is the test of the wilderness. Do we trust that God will provide for us what we need in the wilderness? So in Exodus 16, we find them traveling out through the desert. It says they were 15 months into the 15 days into the second month, which means it's been about 30 days since Passover when they fled Egypt. 30 days of a, a community road trip leaving Egypt. And verse 2, Exodus 16, 2. In the desert wilderness, the whole community grumbled against Moses. They grumbled. Now, before I tell you anything else, I want to just divide um, humanity into two kinds of people. There are those of you who love a good road trip, and there are the rest of us who hate them. Some of you, you just long for a good road trip. Just get out there on the highway, look around. You, I mean, you, you, you make a playlist for the road trip. And it, it, it takes you some time. You gotta, we we got to think this through. You can't just be putting any. You can't, there's no shuffle. I'm making a place. And then the snacks. I mean, each gas station is an opportunity. You got the Sour Patch Kids, the, the Spicy Flaming Hot Cheetos. And there's always that questionable beef jerky that's not wrapped, that you don't know how long it's been there. And you only get it on road trips. I mean, road trip fuel. And then you get out there on the open road, the wind, the music. Oh, it just, it's terrible. <laughs> I can't stand road trips. I, I want to be where I'm going. 
I'm a destination guy. And I know, oh, our pastor doesn't appreciate the journey. I don't. Not if it, <laughs> not if it means being in a car for lots of hours. Not, don't appreciate the journey. I, I've been through Kansas. I saw a giant ball of yarn. I didn't need that in my life. I don't need it again. Get me where I'm going on road trips. It gets hot. I mean, you've been there. You remember when you're on the sun side of a road trip and you're just so hot from here. Everybody else is all cold. You're over here sweating. You got a sunburn on one side. No one needs that. It gets old. It gets dull. You know what I do on road trips? I grumble. My kids aren't, are we there yet? I'm like, are we there yet? (laughs) I grumble. And so when it says in Exodus 16 that they grumbled, I get it. I'm with them. You know, the promised land is two weeks that way. And it's already been a month. (laughs) Verse three, they say this, if only the Lord had killed us back in Egypt. Now, I don't go that far. I'm not like, if only he got me back in rifle, and here I am in Grand Junction. No, 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 no. So there, I mean, this is a little dramatic, but you can hear and listen to their voice. If only the Lord had killed us back in Egypt. They moaned there in slavery. We sat around pots filled with meat and ate all the bread we wanted, but now you have brought us out in the wilderness to starve us to death. I mean, when you put this in perspective, though, it's a little ridiculous. God has just rescued these people from generational slavery. Rescued their babies from being born into slavery. Rescued their, their newborn sons from being killed. Rescued their, their children from being treated like cattle. One month into a wilderness road trip, and they want to go back to slavery. You see, they romanticized the past. Pharaoh kept them well-fed. He kept his workforce well-fed. Imagine, there they are. We were so well-fed back then. We had it all there. We had, oh yeah, we had 16-hour days and our babies were taken from us and our women were used and our lives were crushed, but we had pots of meat and bread. Wish we could go back. You see, in the wilderness, when you are in a wilderness season, you romanticize the past or you fantasize about the future. Anything to stay out of the present. That's what we do. Oh, if only it was like that. If only it would be like that. But it's right here, right now. We're in the wilderness. We don't have all the answers. We have some uncertainty and that's hard for us. Ray Vanderlaan, one of my favorite teachers, raises an interesting question. He says, were they actually hungry? Because if you go into the language, there's some things here that are interesting. Like, were they actually, they they said, we remember how we used to sit around pots of meat. And Psalm 78, verse 18 says, they stubbornly tested God in their hearts, demanding the food they craved. So, were they hungry? Or did they have cravings? Now, in the wilderness, our cravings scream at us. In the wilderness, when, when we don't, we're not getting everything that we would want, what does your mind, what does your heart, your emotions, your body, what do you begin to crave? And because what do you crave that makes you look elsewhere than God to fulfill it? That maybe the next trip or the next this or the next that, that's what's going to do it. Often it is our cravings, it's our cravings that lead us into sin away from God. And here, they craved something they had in captivity, and they grumbled against God about it. Now, remember, Exodus is made up of many different movements and themes. The first movement of Exodus was the freeing of the slaves. And we are now in the second movement of Exodus, the second part of the book. And the theme of the second part of the book is testing. We've talked about this. And the, tra- the, the, the test in this movement is trust. That's what the whole thing is about. God wants to know if his people will begin to trust him no matter what they face. So he's asking them in the challenges you face with the Red Sea, with Pharaoh, 
with this, these, these cravings. Do you trust me? When you have cravings, do you trust me enough to come to me for fulfillment? Do you trust me enough to bring your appetites and needs to me? Do you trust me as your provider? That's the whole wilderness season. Do you trust me? And God continues to ask that question. And for some of you, you are in very definite wilderness seasons. And the question is, he's asking, do you trust me? So there they are. And what does God do? In verse 4, the Lord said to Moses, I'm going to rain down bread from heaven to you, for you. And each day the people can go out, pick up as much food as they need for that day. God sends bread from heaven to sustain them, and they call it manna. They've never seen anything like it. In fact, the word manna, do you know what it means? It's translated, it means, what is it? They name it, what is it? They've never seen it before. It's this bread from heaven. They have no context Manna is the bread from heaven to resource the people in a difficult season. They cried out for relief, and God gives it to them. But notice, he does not resolve their situation. He resources them in the wilderness, but he didn't immediately resolve the circumstance. He didn't end the wilderness. Now, he will, but he doesn't end it right there. But what he does do is resource them in the wilderness all we pray is, God, get me out. But sometimes God is getting something out of us in that season, and so he's going to resource you in it. It goes on. Manna comes down in, in verse 18 and 19. Each family had just what it needed. Then Moses told them, don't keep any of it until the next morning. But some of them didn't listen and kept some of it until morning. You know, there's always the mom with the Tupperware. I mean, and, and she's out there getting a little extra the guy who's put in his pockets, and then what happens? The next, uh, but by then it was full of maggots and had a terrible smell. God sends the people a resource of manna that is only for that day. This is the first manna principle. Manna is for today only. That's the first principle we learn when it comes to God's resources. He said, I'm going to rain down bread from heaven that will be for you just for today. He meets their needs for the now. Tomorrow will have its own needs he provided whatever they would need for today. Now, now, manna didn't even answer their uncertainty about tomorrow. It just gave them resource for today. This hits the same point I made last week. And I would say this, if you missed last week and you would say that you deal with worry, I would be sure to go check out last week's message, which is all about that. Because worry is something that we as humans, it, 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 it can get us and own us and dictate us. And so go check that one out. But it's the same point, that God will resource what you need today. His resources of peace and strength are for the now. Is he going to answer all the anxieties about the future uncertainty? No. His manna is peace for the present. And here in Exodus, not everyone believed that there was only manna for today. So they went out and they gathered more. They stored more. And of course, they found that it spoiled. What that means is, is that yesterday's resources... Don't work for tomorrow's problems. God will have fresh resources for you then. He'll have fresh peace. He'll have renewed patience, crisp contentment. He'll have strength for you tomorrow as fresh as the morning dew, but it will be then for that day. You see, manna from heaven, God's resources for us are for today. The first manna principle, manna is for today. The second manna principle, you have to go seek it. Verse four, I'm going to rain down bread from heaven. Each of the people can go out and pick up as much food as they want or need for that day. If they don't go out and get it, they don't have it. God gives us manna, this divine resource. And the question always is, okay, so, so they had manna just fall and they would see it and go get it. Where's our manna? 
Like, where's the divine resource for my life? Where's the peace and strength I need? I'll tell you where it's not. I don't find manna in distractions. I don't find manna in entertainment. I don't find manna in busyness. I don't find heaven's resources in the world's offerings. I do not. Where do I find manna from my heart? Like, where do I feel resourced by God? You know, oftentimes it's, it's in a God-centered conversation with my wife or with some of my closest friends. Have you ever had those conversations where you leave the table or you leave the fire pit and you just feel lifted, strengthened? I find manna in, in daily reading and feeding on the Bible. I find manna in my prayer time when my mind is still and I'm listening in his presence or, or pouring out my heart. I, found, I find manna when I'm engaging in worship music. And over the past couple of weeks, there's been some moments where I have just been empty and I was driving to another engagement. I'd come from a day of meetings and some crisis and was heading to another meeting to a speaking engagement. And I remember just being absolutely, utterly empty. And I had 10 minutes on the back road. And I was like, God, I don't have anything. So I put on some worship music and I just engaged my heart. And I prayed. I mean, if you would have passed me or seen me on that road, you would have seen me just like hands raised, eyes closed, Jesus take the wheel. Just, I mean... I was singing, I was praying, I was crying. I, ten minute trip, I got out a different person. God had resourced me, fueled me, sustained me for what I needed. I find manna when I'm purposely seeking and spending time with God. I can't seek God today and hope that his peace will be with me tomorrow. Manna spoils. I can't rely on last week's sermon to last me all week. I have to go seek my own manna the next day. So manna principles, it's only good for today, and to gather manna, I have to go seek it. Now, I could preach, there, there's so much with the manna principles, and, and I was so, there, there's so much I cut out, because I could just keep going with the manna principles, but I want to pause there for a second, and connect some dots, and look at how the Exodus bread of heaven connects to Jesus, and then connects to you and me here today. So I want to, I want to, I want to pause there in Exodus 16. And it's here in the beginning of the Bible, Exodus 16. And I want to fast forward thousands of years to John 6. And so we have Jesus. He is on a hillside. He has just fed 5,000 people. Now that's 5,000 men, so probably more like 15,000 people. He has just miraculously fed 15,000 people. He performed a miracle about resourcing people while they were in the wilderness following God's prophet. Does that sound familiar? It sounds like Exodus 16. He fed them, but, but then night comes, the next day dawns, and guess what? The people are hungry again. And even though he's already miraculously come through for them time after time, they still aren't convinced that he is who he says he is, and they keep following him because they want his miracles They're more interested in the the hand of God and what he can do for them than the heart of God and who he is. And we're going to see what happens if we live a life like that. In fact, Jesus says to them when they come to him this next time, he says, "You, you should believe in me and who I am. And listen to their answer in John 6, 30. They answered, show us a miraculous sign if you want us to believe in you. What can you do? Well, I just fed all of you yesterday miraculously. And many of these people have been following him as he's going, going through other things. After all, they say, our ancestors ate manna while they journeyed through the wilderness. The scripture says Moses gave them bread from heaven to eat. So Jesus, prove yourself. You think we should believe in you? 
You know, prove yourself. Oh, and we're hungry. And speaking of bread, Jesus, I don't know if you know this in the Bible, but um, Moses gave bread from heaven to the people that followed him when they were hungry. And uh, we're in a wilderness here, Jesus, and we're hungry. You see how it's all lining up. Here we have God's people out in the countryside following someone around and grumbling about food. And what do they reference? Manna. Just like their ancestors. So listen to Jesus' reply in John 48, 648. He says, you want manna? I am the bread of life. Your ancestors, yeah, they ate manna in the wilderness, but they all died. I am the living bread that came down from heaven, and anyone who eats this bread will live forever. And this bread which I offer so that the world may live is my flesh. Now, I can't overstate just how shocking these statements would have been to them. In fact, sometime on your own, not now. And I, I can see when you keep reading, along, keep reading so don't, I'll call you out. Um, go read John 6 on your own because you'll be shocked at some of the, 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 the drama of the John 6. They say, we want bread, and Jesus says, the bread is my flesh. They're confused by this. It says they begin murmuring about it. What did he mean? What did he mean? So he clarifies in verse 53. So Jesus said again, I tell you the truth, unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man, that's him, and drink his blood, you cannot have eternal life within you. (laughs) Can you imagine that church service and that altar call? That's a rough one. I mean, what is Jesus saying here? They wanted some bread, and Jesus says, my flesh needs to be eaten and my my blood to be drink. I mean... How out of place, do you know how out of place that was back then? It's out of place now, isn't it? We look at that and go, oh, no, I brought a guest, and he's talking about drinking blood of all the weeks. Yeah, I get it. Don't worry. We're not going to drink any blood in here, okay? Um, it's, it's strange. We want bread from heaven like Moses gave, and Jesus says, I am the bread, and you have to eat my flesh, drink my blood. What? Like, what is he referring to here? I'm not sure this teaching of Jesus is in many sermons these days. They want the manna, and he offers himself. They want the bread from heaven to eat, and he claims that he is that bread to eat. This teaching confused them. It disgusted many of them. It made them angry, and and it was too much, too much for them. John 6, 60. On hearing Jesus' words, many of his disciples said, This is a hard teaching. Who can accept this? At this point, many of his disciples turned away and deserted him. Now, there's different crowds following Jesus. The 15,000 who are there for the bread and the miracles. And then you got some more devoted people. And then you have Jesus' 12 disciples that he chose. They didn't leave him. But there were also hundreds, if not multiple hundreds of disciples who had chosen to follow Jesus. So there's all these people here. Now the crowds heard this and like, you know what? We're out. We just wanted a snack and a miracle and that is too much. We, we did not want this. But then also these hundreds of other disciples who had left their life to follow him, this is too much, for, too much for them. They went back to their old life. You see, they thought they were followers, but when it got hard, they realized they were just fans. They realized they were looking for the handout of God instead of the heart of God. They thought they were followers. They were fans when it was easy and it was fun. But when life got difficult, when it stopped being, when they stopped getting what they wanted out of Jesus, they left. They stopped following him because of disappointment, because Jesus didn't do for them what they wanted him to do. And I see this a lot of people who, who Jesus didn't come through for me the way I wanted to come through for me. And so I just, I stopped attending. 
I stopped believing. But we have to ask the question, we have to wrestle with this, what is Jesus talking about here? What is this bread of life to eat that's his flesh? What does he mean? Okay, so from John 6, I want to fast forward three years. I want to leave that hillside with those thousands of people leaving him, and I want to go to a small room with 13 men in it. Okay, three years in the future. It's Passover dinner. It's the meal that the Hebrews have eaten and celebrated for, for thousands of years, from generation to generation to generation. They, they had a meal to celebrate the exodus we've been talking about. And they would have five glasses of wine, and they would have three special matzah pieces of bread, and everything about the meal had a symbolism in it. It's a whole meal dedicated to, to how God freed his people there in those ancient days, remembering all that he had done. Now, they had these three special matzahs um, wrapped in cloth. Now, three separate matzahs. And the middle one, they would always take out during this meal and break it. But did you know for all those centuries, for all those generations, they never knew why there were three matzahs and they never knew why they break the middle one. But then Jesus steps into history He's the fulfillment of the prophecies. We already discussed how he fulfilled the Passover. Now, he preached three years before this that he was the bread of life. And thousands left that teaching because he said, you need to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And he's about to make a statement that is, that during this meal, that would have been so shocking to these other 12 disciples. He takes out the cloth remaining with the, the, the middle piece, like it had been done for generations. And I believe personally, that these three pieces of matzah, this is, the first one is the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so they would take the middle matzah out. He reaches in, and Jesus grabs it. Now, this had been done, again, for generation upon generation. He holds it up, as is always done. He breaks it, as is always done. But instead of the normal blessing, he says, guys, this is me. This has always been me. This is my body. The same way this bread is broken, so I will be broken. And for generations, it's always been about Exodus. But here he's teaching them it's about something new, something brand new. He says, my, like he's, my, my disciples, you, when you used to take this bread, you would think of Egypt. But don't think of Egypt any longer. Think of me. You had always eaten this bread and thought about the freedom your forefathers enjoyed back then. But from now on, take and eat in remembrance of me for the freedom you will have in me. So anytime you take this meal, remember me. He said, this is my body broken for you. And then what does he tell them to do? Take and eat. He then grabs a cup of wine and he says, this is the blood of a new covenant, my blood Take and drink. Which brings us back to what, we rewind back to what he said three years earlier. John 6, 56. Anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. Many people had left when he said that. They had no context, understanding. Is he claiming the Passover meal saves you? Is he claiming if you eat communion that you are saved? No, it's way beyond the meal. It's way more beautiful than that. Notice he, said, notice he said, if you do this, if you do this in remembrance of me, you will remain in me, I will remain in you. The word remain means abide or to live. I will live in you and live in me. It's a double abiding, a double remaining. So let's, let's move to John, 1 John 
Listen to the language. John writes, if anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And there we have again the double, the double abiding, the double remaining. In fact, the language is the same language. Anyone who acknowledges or confesses or believes that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them, abides in them, remains in them, and you will abide in God. In fact, it's the same language, the same words. When a person comes to salvation by the resurrection of the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus and partakes of that, you remain in God and he remains in you. When you come to believe in Jesus, that he lived, died, and rose again, there's a transaction in your spirit and there's a double abiding. The manna of Exodus, this bread of heaven that saved God's people in the ancient days long ago, is pointing. It's a sign pointing thousands of years into the future. It's foreshadowing someone who's to come who will be the bread of life. You want manna? I am the true bread that comes down, came down from heaven, Jesus said. Anyone who eats this bread will not die as your ancestors did, even though they ate the manna. But if you eat this, you will live forever. You see, one gave you life in the desert for a season. But this bread, Jesus, his broken body, it gives you life that lasts into eternity. So what does this mean for us today? It means that Jesus is the true manna. He's the true bread of heaven. And he's correct when he says that he gives people eternal life if they partake in his death and resurrection, believing it is him, is God, acknowledging that he is Jesus, the Savior, the Son of God, that he, he was broken, that he bled, that he died, and he rose again. And you know what? When he pulls you out of your Egypt, out of your past sin, he, he saves you and leads you into a promised land. And more than that, along the way, he doesn't just save you from something for heaven someday. All along the way in between, he is the manna to sustain you, to give you wisdom and insight and strength and peace and power and courage that you need for no matter what life brings your way. For some here today, you need to come to Jesus and acknowledge that he is the son of God, that his body was broken for you, that he rose again, to acknowledge that he is who he said he is and that he can, he can save your life, not just for eternity, but here on earth, and that he will live in you and you will live in him. And for others, we need to be reminded, perhaps you have been on this journey for a while and you need to be reminded, it is time to go back to some basics it's time to be reminded that we need to, to, to daily seek God in our lives. That you are likely facing some situations or you will face situations and you're going to need God's manna. You're going to need his, his presence, his spirit, to feed on his word, to seek him daily. I mean, we have um, Bible apps now that can read the Bible to you while you drive. We have, we have so much at our disposal. It is time to re-engage and the daily practice of seeking, seeking God. To open his word and be strengthened. To open our hearts in prayer and be bolstered. To open our life in faith and be transformed. And in this today, before we take communion, and don't open communion yet and don't take it, I just want to say if there's any in here today, and you, you have never, you have never taken that step to declare, acknowledge, confess that Jesus is the son of God. That he died and rose again. I want you to pray this prayer with me. Simple as this, same. Father, I have tried life on my own. I know that Jesus lived, died, and resurrected. 
I acknowledge you, Jesus, as the Son of God. And take a deep breath. Holy Spirit, fill me. God, take my life, take my sin, and fill me afresh. And now for all of us, I would like you to do this together, so stick with me. Go ahead and take out the top of your communion. Take out your bread, but don't break it yet. If you need one, we have some in the front and on the sides and back. Don't take it yet. You know, as we take communion today, before we, t- before we break this and partake in remembrance like he told us to, let's do a little business. I want you, first of all, in prayer, to thank him for who he is. Thank him for what he has done. And then take a little time and confess anything you need to confess to him as your savior. Go ahead. Jesus, we acknowledge you as the Son of God. And we as one, we raise up your body and we break it as you were broken. For us, we ask you to forgive our sins. We do this in remembrance of you. And we thank you that you are our bread of life. Take and eat. And we lift up the cup, the symbol of your shed blood. Jesus, we thank you for all that you went through for us and your blood that was shed for our healing, for our forgiveness. Praise you, King Jesus. Take and drink. Really cool tidbit. Those who acknowledge Jesus as Son of God and who someday will be in heaven with him, did you know that you will taste manna I don't mean the symbol of manna that he resources us I mean like you will get to taste the same manna that they tasted in the desert Revelation 2.17 to those who enter into eternal life I will give some of the manna that has been hidden away in heaven you will taste the manna and I will give to each one of you Listen to this, a white stone, and on that stone will be engraved a new name that no one understands except for the person who receives it. See, see, in heaven, we will taste the bread of heaven that the day our forefathers did. We will taste that ancient manna, and also we'll receive our truest name, our truest identity there in that place. But until that day, until that day, the question is, do we trust him now? Do we trust him that he's going to provide for us? We're going to sing a song called Jireh, which means provider, that God is enough. And as we sing this song, if you're in a desert season, if you're in a wilderness season, I'm going to ask some of my friends um, and elders and leaders to be present in the front and back. We want to pray over you. If you want prayer today, it's yours. And for the rest of us, let us worship Yahweh Jireh, our God who provides, our God who is enough.